Today's reading is from the book of Colossians. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. So the portion of scripture we just listened to or read is what I call a difficult or hard text. There's quite a few in the Bible. You've probably come across them. Uh, Let me give you my definition for what a difficult text is. It's a set of verses that seemingly contradict other or similar verses about similar subject matter in the Bible and often, just in a casual or surface reading, seem to be inconsistent what we know to be true about the nature and character of our God. And as a Christian, the Bible is going to become a big part of your life. It's how we commune with God. It's how we learn about God. Everybody should have a Bible. It's like a tool. It's like a paintbrush or your favorite knife or whatever. And so we're going to have this lifelong affair with the Bible. It's our manual for life. And we're going to come across difficult texts. Now, what do we do? Do we skate over it? Do we pretend they don't exist? The beauty of what we do here at Calvary is we're teaching you through the Word of God. So so we're not looking for difficult texts, but when we come upon them, uh, we want to find out what they mean. Let me start by saying this. God inspired difficult texts. Does everybody know the problem's not on his end? And he understands completely what's here. It's on our end. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given and inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and right living. Okay, so it's all inspired by God, and I believe God inspired difficult texts. Now, you guys have listened to me long enough to know that I think the Bible's an amazing book. It's a miraculous book. You know, it has human authorship. It's divinely inspired. God had to figure out a way for that to happen. And it was written over thousands of years by 40 authors. Some of them were kings. Some of them were paupers. Some of them were in prison. Some of them were in palaces. It has song. It has metaphor. It talks about creation. I mean, it has all these wonderful things. And here's one of the things I love about it. It's so simple that a child can understand. You know, we have two floors dedicated to children this morning. They're learning the Word of God. But it's so complex, the greatest minds of the last... Two to 3,000 years have plumbed the depths of it. And so it's inspired by God that the man or the woman of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every portion of Scripture, there's something there to correct something in our fallen nature. And we're complete in Him. That's the theme of Colossians. Jesus is enough. He's all we need. Biblical math is this, you can write it down, Jesus plus everything equals nothing, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He's the foundation, he's the building blocks, he's all you need. You don't need psychology, you don't need philosophy, you don't need the latest study of this or study of that. It's all helpful, and all truth is God's truth, but Jesus is enough. That's what we're learning. 
And I kind of tried to pound that home last week in these glorious verses in chapter 1, 15 through 19, that he's the image of the invisible God. That he's, he's the agent of creation. Everything was created by him and for him. And he holds it together by the word of his power. If he can hold the protons together in an atom, he can hold your life together. If he can keep the entire ecosystem working, he can keep your life working. He's all you need. We're going to pound that home in this study. Now, it says that in all things, he must have the preeminence. He must be first. So God placed him first above all creation. That's his rightful place. When he's in his rightful place, it all works. Now, I got saved at 21 years old. I thought that was too late. I'm baptizing kids on Wednesday night. They're going into high school. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wish I became a Christian freshman in high school. Some of you later, it's no big deal. But I got saved at just enough time, 21 years old, to make Christ preeminent in my marriage. Preeminent in raising my children. Preeminent in career choices and how I would spend money and standard of living. The movies I would watch, the music I would listen to, the conversations I'd be involved in. And 35 years later, I have watched the fruit of that, that, that if I would have leaned on my own understanding, I would have fouled things up. But, but God has to be first, and the blessings flow. Now, the verses we just read, it said that he's preeminent in salvation. You know, when Adam sinned, it was easy. God said, the day you sin, you'll surely die. Adam should have died, gone out of existence, the end of it all. But God, from the foundation of the world, put into plan this idea that Christ would come. And that he would die on the cross and we would be reconciled. It's not a word we use a lot today. Except some of you reconcile your checkbook, some of you don't. When you reconcile your checkbook, you take all the you know deposits and you know, credits on your side, and then you do, you look at the bank statement, and guess what? They're always right, right? Times you think you're right, you're like, Arr! and they're, they're always right. It's just, you're reconciling. So, salvation is, you thought one way, God thought another way, and you were reconciled. Now, you might be saying, well, where's the difficulty in the text? <laughs> Verse 23. It says, we were reconciled, that we're being made above reproach, If we continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and on our moved away from the gospel that we heard. Now, here's why it's difficult. In this church, most of us believe that grace changes everything. Most of us came from religion. Most of us realized religion wasn't the way, and we found a beautiful Savior. And we read these glorious verses in Ephesians that by grace we were saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us would boast. Most of us came... From kind of a works mentality. And now we boast about this grace that it is finished and it's all on God. Now we read here that the gift giver wants to take back that gift. That maybe there is some kind of works that I have to be steadfast and movable, always bounding in the work of the Lord. Or maybe I could lose my salvation. And maybe I'm really not assured of heaven. So I don't think these are verses we can skate over. Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter. He's our beloved fisherman, right? Kind of blue-collar, lunch-pail Philadelphia guy who last week we saw in his epistles is writing about splitting the atom. Kind of neat what God can do. Uh, in 2 Peter, Peter said, Our beloved brother Paul, remember all the disciples struggled with Paul because he was killing Christians. According to the wisdom God gave him, wrote to you in all his letters. 
Peter's saying, look, I, I know what you're feeling. This guy swims in the deep end of the pool. Paul was really smart. That's why God inspired him to write Romans. Peter's saying, look, he's not blue collar. He's, he's all that. In which some things are hard to understand. Which the untaught distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Peter said, what Paul's writing you is inspired by God. It's the wisdom of God. And there is learning here. Like, there's the untaught take this and they move it into some kind of category that produces error. Um, the Bible's a wonderful book. Easy for a child to understand it, but we need teachers of the Word of God. It's one of the gifts in Scripture. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, remember when Philip said, do you understand what you're reading in Isaiah? He said, no. How can I understand unless someone teach me? Uh, Jesus taught them uh, as one having great authority. So, so we need people that would teach the Word of God. Paul told Timothy to instruct people by rightly dividing the Word of truth. So hard texts are here for a reason. Now, think this through with me for a minute. God made us in his image, right? That means we have the ability to think and feel and create. And man is, is I mean, man is all that now, right? We've split the atom. We've gone to the moon. We've created iPhones. I mean, man has probed into genetics and physics to, to a degree that's astounding. And that's because God made us in his image. So therefore, when God gave us the Bible... He allowed us this technique of reading scripture where we can plumb the depths of it for a lifetime. God wants to be sought. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm. It's about the word of God. In verse 18, he said, open my eyes, God, that I might behold your wondrous things in your law. God, open my eyes. I want to see the riches. I know there's treasure below the surface, God. Open my eyes that I might see this. That I might ponder. Uh, you might not realize this, but uh, many of the scriptures that I love and I'm convinced of, I actually go back again and again and ponder them uh, to see if God might show me another way. Sp specifically prophecy. You know, our view of the end times. You probably think, uh, you know, in a few weeks we're going to be in Thessalonians. I'm going to be teaching you about the rapture. And I know some of you don't believe in the rapture and you think I drank the rapture Kool-Aid or whatever. And uh, I go back time and time again. I read other views. I read other scriptures. Lord, open my eyes. Gifts of the Spirit, lifestyle, uh, all kind of things I think are important again and again to look at. I think C.S. Lewis nailed it when he said, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. Now, most people that aren't Christians think we have no brains at all. And Christianity is not a purely intellectual pursuit. You know, head, heart, and hands is the way I like to look at it. And we often take for granted what we're doing right now. Do you realize what we just did? What we just did, no one does that doesn't go to church. First of all, where do unbelievers ever sing in unison outside of singing Free Bird at some like outdoor picnic? or in the shower, or in the car. We sing every week. And there's studies that singing does great things for you. Where else do you go where every week you get to examine your life against Scripture and ponder things and talk about history and, you know, never take for granted this wonderful thing that we do. 
You know, I mentioned Peter, a fisherman. Go read his uh, sermons in the book of Acts. He's pulling from all over the Old Testament. The guy became a scholar. My stepbrother, I talked about him before when I led him to Christ. He was a high school dropout. Hair down that was belt buckle, dropping acid. God taught him how to read in the King James Version. And today he can go toe-to-toe with anybody through Scripture. Moody was a shoe salesman with an eighth grade education. And then on the other side is John Lennox, mathematician at Oxford University, who when we sat in my office talked to me about John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with was God. And he said, isn't it funny how we've gone from an agricultural society to an industrial to a technological. Now we're back to the information age, which was always back in John. In the beginning was the Word, and he started talking about DNA and information. I'm thinking, whew. I mean, you could have put me in a room for a hundred years reading John 1, and I would have never discovered that. And that's the beauty of the Bible. It's a book that keeps giving because there's an author and there's life. And we can spend a lifetime looking at the things that are under the Scripture. So, this morning we're going to look at a difficult text. I'm going to use this as a blueprint to help you the next time you hit a difficult text. So, the same principles apply. And um, so, let's begin. Whenever you hit a difficult text, the first thing you want to look at is the context. Now, when we talk about a difficult text, we're not talking about the Mormon saying the Book of Mormon is a Bible or added on to the Bible, and then they go find two or three verses. We're not talking about purgatory, which is between heaven and hell. Let's go find a few verses. We're talking about verses, many verses, that seem to tell the same story. For instance, let me give you some verses that back up uh, Colossians 1 here. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 46 say, For it is impossible, it's a pretty strong word, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Paul said this to the Galatians, Stand therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not again be entangled with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. Pretty strong. You have attempted to be justified the law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And the most troubling words come from Jesus himself. Right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It is a travesty that anyone will ever go to hell. It's a travesty that people that believe in a multiplicity of gods and don't know the love of Christ will go to hell. It is a further travesty that someone who thinks they're in the faith, someone casting out demons, someone doing this in Jesus' name would ever wind up in hell. But Jesus said, many are coming and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So you put these verses together and they seem very consistent with the idea that someone can lose their salvation. 
Now, what's the context? Well, to the Galatians and to the Hebrews, the writers are writing the people who were being Judaized. In other words, they had to become Jews to become Christians. To, to the Galatians, Paul was clear, you believed another gospel. Not that there is another one, but, but you believe something different, what's real. And he said they were bewitched. There was a spell cast on them. Uh, the people that Jesus is speaking to in his day were religious Jews. And let me tell you, we love Israel. We love the concept of Israel. We don't love Judaism. Judaism uh, minus Christ is as lost as any other religion. If you really want to crack the code of this, look back up to verse 15 where it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And that, that word image should bring you back to the second commandment. That you should not make God any image of God, right? Uh, it's a very interesting commandment because God told the Jews, I want you to be the custodians of who I am. I want you to export who I am to the nations. Thomas Cahill in his book, The Gift of the Jews, said they accomplished that, that a tribe of desert nomads changed the way everyone thinks and feels. How did they do it? Well, they did it through the Word of God. The Word of God has literally gone all throughout the world and has transformed the world. And if you want to do an interesting study, look at Rome and look at Jerusalem. And I've been to Jerusalem five times. I've been to Rome twice. When you go to Jerusalem, you'll find no frescoes, no works of art. Why? Because the Jews took seriously not to make any image of God. Go to Rome and there's statues as tall as this room. And there's frescoes galore and there's pictures of Christ all over the place. The second commandment's prohibition against icons was twofold. Number one, God said there's no image, no image on earth that can ever show the totality of who I am. Everything would suffer in comparison. Uh, for instance, I was in Egypt one time for 10 days, you know, all mosques, nothing about Christianity. Went and saw this cave church, which was Orthodox. And they had a cross on the wall. And I'm like, thank God, uh, just to see a cross. And the cross means a lot to me. Um, Paul said he gloried in the cross, the concept of it. But do you notice some Jews, it means something else. They think they're Christ killers or they've been told that. So we have to be careful of images. There's people that aren't Christians today because Jesus has been pictured as European or American or something that he's not. Thank God no one drew a picture of Jesus while he was here. The other reason why we're not to make an image of God is that we'd be prone to bow down and worship that image. You all realize that about yourself? Um, I've seen some images on lawns as I drive by. Remember the serpent that Moses put on the pole, the bronze serpent? They worshiped that in the Old Testament sometime later. And then uh, what about all of you who think you would never be prone to do this, who sit in a stadium wearing a jersey with another man's name on your back. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever pay $100 for a shirt you don't need that doesn't wear well anywhere else with someone else's name on your back? Because you're prone to worship. You're prone. You were made to identify. You were made in the image of God. We are image bearers. We reflect the image. That's why you wear polo and Gucci. That's why... That's why we do all that we do. Marketers figured this out a long time ago. It's not that hard. Every commercial you see, every color, every image is designed. There's been studies. 
We're prone to worship. We're prone to identify. And that's why God gave the prohibition. Now, let me take you, let me just nudge you a little bit farther. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. They were to have no image. Not only are icons imagery or statues, but what about the imagination? Never think about this. Same word. When I was in college, we were talking about God one day, and I grew up Catholic, and I said, you know what I believe? I believe that uh, we're reincarnated over and over again, and when we finally live a good life, then we go to heaven. This girl in the back seat said, I love that. I think I'm going to adopt that. And I thought, man, I just came up with like a pickup line. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) And think how ridiculous this was. I'm a college freshman. I was raised in one faith. I come up with this cocky, many idea about reincarnation, which can't be proved. How do you prove someone lives over and over again? And then you'll be good to go to heaven. Like, where's all the evidence for that? And it came out of my imagination, and I'm creating God in my image now. People do this all the time. Um, they think they're going to heaven because they're a good person. Or they go to church. Or maybe they read the Bible, or they hang around with good people, or they got baptized at sizzling summer. I can't tell anyone that got baptized at sizzling summer they're going to heaven. Because I don't know what's in their heart. All of that is an imagination that does not line up with what God says. Look at verse 21. Salvation is this. You, speaking to believers, who were once aliens and enemies of the mind through wicked works, have now been reconciled. To be a believer means there is a lost and found, a was now. Uh, somebody tells me, well, Pastor Bob, I always believe. Well, the demons believe and tremble. That's not a big leap. I mean, we just studied last week. You look outside, you look at the ecosystem, there has to be a God. It's not a big leap. The man upstairs, I mean, come on. No. Uh, a transformed person, it said, was an enemy of God. Was alienated in their mind. Now, these are people that will tell you, oh my gosh, this is the way I was and this is what I am now. Outside of that, there's no salvation. And along with this comes repentance and confession of sin and the renewal and the unction of the Holy Spirit to change. So what is the context of the scripture? Second one's a little more difficult on the surface. You might disagree with it, but almost every major doctrine in scripture is paradoxical. It's not inconsistent. Uh, there's not a discrepancy. It's just paradoxical. Because it came from heaven, a finite m- mind will have trouble with it. There's tension. Uh, two things are true, and it's hard for human beings to live within the tension. If you doubt this, if I went up to someone and said, who lives your Christian life? You might quote a verse and say, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And then I can go over here, and somebody would quote Paul who said, I buffet my body as a soldier. Now, they're both true, And we live in the tension of them, okay? James says, faith without works is dead. But then Jesus said, faith works. Uh, Lord, how did we know you? Well, you fed me when I was hungry, and you gave me drink, and you visited me in prison. Remember I told you there's a whole lot of scriptures that support the other side, that make it paradoxical, that show the security of the believer? Jesus in John 6, 37 said, all the Father gives me shall come to me. 
And he who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 10, 27, all the Father has given me, uh, no one is able to snatch out of my hand. And then what I love to call the believer's treasure, Romans 8, what can separate us from the God that we love? Nothing, whether famine or sword or pestilence, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Philippians said, what we have committed to him, he's reserving until the final day. Hence, our dilemma. Hence, the difficult set of verses. Now, the greatest error we could ever make when looking at paradoxical doctrines is to lean on one side or the other. So in this area of the security of the believer, if you jump on one side, you become a Calvinist. And Calvinists come in many forms. I know there's mild Calvinists, there's mid-Calvinists, there's hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-Calvinists say, God not only chose who would be saved, he chose who would be damned. And so you lean out on that side. Uh, others are Arminianists in their thinking, saying God just shut up, set up the whole shooting match. And uh, if you find Christ, you found the needle in the haystack, and that's the way it plays out. They lean towards free will. I believe both are true. And I believe to believe one to the exclusion of the other is to cut a whole lot of scriptures out either way. What is the context? Understand there's paradoxical scripture and we have to live in the tension. Third thing I would recommend, I won't spend any time on this, is I always try and read great scholars, people who have done word studies, try and get some of their thinking. And then here's where I want to move you. When it's all said and done, pray and let it drive you to your knees with God. It may take years to unpack. You know how this dilemma was solved for me one day? I was reading the account of the parable of the sower in Luke. Now, the common reading is in math. It's also Matthew. It's also in Mark. And, you know, I'm prone to read over things that are familiar. But, you know, I'm reading this in Luke. And it's a very easy parable. It's one of Jesus' first parables about a sower sowing seed. And some falls on hard soil, some on rocky, some among weeds. And then some on good ground that produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then Jesus even gives the interpretation. He said, the son of man is the sower, the seed is the word of God, and the soils are the types of hearers or the receptivity of the heart. So pretty basic, right? So I'm reading in Luke one day, and I get to this part, and I, I was just floored, where Jesus said that the seed on the wayside or the hard soil are those who hear the word of God, but the devil comes immediately and takes out the word out of their hearts, and this is the phrase, and it's only in Luke. Lest they believe and be saved. And it was like, wow, something just happened there. Lest they believe and be saved. And then I read, Jesus said, if you can't understand this parable, you can't understand any of the parables. And then it dawned on me. Three-fourths of the people I might meet might have every outward look that they followed Christ. Sizzling summer, they may have got caught up in a moment, saw everybody else go into the pool, did it for their son or daughter, thought they were getting keys to the kingdom. I don't know. But I know this, the true and receptive heart bears constant fruit. There's evidence. 
This hard text tells me there's people that look like believers, smell like believers. But you know what the great equalizer is? Remember when I read you that Jesus said, many, many will come to my name and he'll say, I never knew you. The very next verse in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, look, here's the way it goes. There's two houses. One's built on rock, one's built on sand. When storms, tribulation, and trials come, you'll find out the foundation of these houses. Until that time, they look exactly the same. They can talk the talk, look the look. Everybody looks the same. When storms, tribulations, and trials come, you will find out if it's Christ we trusted in or did trust lie elsewhere. Did trust lie elsewhere. You look through the ages, and it's amazing what people have lived through. Corey Ten Boom, hiding Jews during World War II. She and her family put in a concentration camp. She watched her father die, her sister die. Got out of that tra- tra- concentration camp on a technicality, became an evangelist, wrote a book called Tramp for the Lord. That tribulation, storm, and trial drove her to her knees. It was hard to live through, but she came out the other side. Because she was built on the foundation. So when I look at this, I think, you know what? There are a group of people who say, Jesus is all I need. He's my everything. And what is happening through life is that you and I are seeing the outworking of the Spirit in our lives. The things we're going through, the valleys and streams we're asked to to navigate in the Christian experience, the high roads, the low roads, the grief, the suffering, we're coming through it and we're seeing more and more of his glory. We're, we're, we're like the, the, the water turned to wine. The closer we get, we understand what God is doing. And like Job, we can say, you know, I knew you from the hearing of the year, but now I have seen your glory. And the Bible talks about working out your faith. And, and I look at my life and I think, you know, faith works. It works in my life. And here's how I know it works in my life. I am a fallen man. I am human, but I am following a wonderful Savior. And and I'll go as far as to say, I think backsliders are saved. There's people on bar stools right now who are saved and going to heaven. And they're probably like David, who for a year, after committing murder and, and lying, was like rottenness in his bones. They know something's wrong. They know they were made for a better world. There there was a transformation. And like the prodigal son, God will bring them back. And so here's my final edict to a very difficult text. Pastor Bob, do you believe once saved, always saved? Yes, if you ever really got saved. And guess what? Nobody can figure that out. There's no God police. There's no wand like the TSA guy has where we go through and say, oh, you're a Christian, you're not, you are, you aren't. That's what happens in really bad churches. They have that wand, right? You had a glass of wine the other day, you're not a Christian. You went to the movies the other day, you're not a Christian. You know, we do this all the time. No one can pluck me out of his hand. That's, that's what I believe. Not from a scholar but through the word of God that has been ministered to me by God alone. Paul said, I am persuaded that all things, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. We are inseparably linked to the God who loves us. And what we've committed to him, he's keeping for the final day. And I know that in my spirit, and I pray that you do. Because we live in a day of easy believism. That's another thing Paul was trying to conquer in some of these verses. We see it today. We see mega churches today. You can slip in and slip out. You say a prayer. You know, that's a dangerous thing to say. I mean, I say it and it's true. But, you know, people think, oh, well, yeah, I said the prayer. I said it like six years ago and went on and lived my own life. I, I got baptized at Sizzling Summer. I go to Calvary Chapel. I'm a good person. All these things. The Bible says, no, there, there is a reconciliation that takes place. Like Zacchaeus who got down from that tree, like the man who beat his breast, like the, like the woman who said, Lord, I have no accusers. I mean, it goes on and on. There's a broken, heartfelt change. And we're all in our humanness following a wonderful Savior. When Jesus said, depart from me, those who practice lawlessness... He certainly wasn't speaking to me. That's what I used to do, right? Every day was practice. Come on, let's practice lawlessness. That's what we were doing. That's not what I'm doing now. I'm like Paul. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. I don't want to do it. If if, if I could make a pact with God that I would never do it again, I wouldn't do it again. But I have the flesh, world, and the devil until I go home. That's the way it's going to be. We are not practicing these things. Sometimes they're in our lives. These people were practicing that because they never had a change. There was never a recreation by the Word of God and the Spirit. And I want to end with this verse because sometimes we could gloss over this. Paul said, The gospel which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I became a minister. Before this time, gods were localized. The Romans had their gods. The Greeks had their gods. The Hindus. And they even looked at the Jews like they had their god, though he was monotheistic. Um, Jesus changed all that when he said, go into all the world. This is for the nations. There's one God, one way to heaven, one book, etc. And you say, well, Pastor Bob, like, geez, that's hard to believe because what about the people that never heard? Well, don't worry about the people that never heard. You heard. That's all you got to worry about. You heard. And by the way, you're the ends of the earth. See, we think we're the center of the world. You ever look at a map of the U.S. or the world? The map of the world has the U.S. right here and then the rest of the world. But if you go to India, they're the center and then there's the rest of the world. That's why we call it a world view. We view the world through our eyes. I hope you know that. So we think here we are in America and we're reaching out to all the pagans. No. It's come to us. We're, we're the end of the road. This is as far as you get. When Paul stood in Israel, we weren't in existence. We were as far as you could go. And all of history was so you could hear. You've heard. You know what it has taken for you to hear? Oh my gosh. Like Western civilization through the gospel? You've heard. And God will judge based on the light people have seen. And the judge of all the earth will do right. What will you do with what you've heard? I encourage you. Examine yourself. The Bible says examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Not to condemn yourself that you might be in the faith. I think it's easy. Real easy. 
You know if you've had an encounter with God or not. And what we've given to him, he's keeping until the final day.